Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's podcast, we have two main segments for you. First up is the second part of our Business Effects series, featuring a conversation between John Caritas, Acton's own Director of Communications, and Phil Sotok, who is a management consultant with DPMC. On Business Effects, we take a look at how businesses, entrepreneurs, and managers make an impact on the culture. On today's episode, John and Phil discuss ethics in the workplace. Then, on our cultural commentary segment, called Upstream, Bruce Edward Walker speaks with Kathy Murray of the Austin-based blues band Kathy and the Kilowatts. Kathy and Bruce discuss predominant themes of freedom and blues music in the history of the Austin blues scene. So, without further ado, let's jump into the first segment. Welcome to Business Effects, a look at the social side of enterprise. I'm your host, John Caritas. Our guest today is Phil Sotak, who was with us in the first inaugural episode when we talked about engagement at work, finding meaning in your work. Welcome back to the show, Phil. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me again. You know, I'm looking at an article from the Washington Post uh, from last year. The title is, More CEOs Are Getting Forced Out for Ethics Violations. And there's a line in here that talks about dismissals for bad behavior between 2012 and 2016 rose from 3.9% in the prior five-year period to 5.3%. So it's on the increase. And of course, if you've been reading the newspaper in the last few months, it seems like CEOs behaving badly have been dominating the news. And so, Phil... Uh, we have, we're having you on because in your work as a management consultant and your background in manufacturing, you've got some insights on this. Your firm, DPMC, engages in some of these questions. And so my first question to you, Phil, is, is this problem getting worse or is it something we've always had with us and we're just sort of lost our way? I think we're losing our way. And this is, you know, that's an opinion. It's, it's not backed by fact. It's just a, a gut feel. I want to walk the fine line between observing what's going on and not judging what's going on. But it seems to me that this idea of ethics and morals in the, in the workplace maybe is unable to capture what we need to capture because it's something you can rationalize. There's always, you know, another side of the story that you can paint that makes your decision palatable. Um, and so I think what maybe we're missing is the practice of old-fashioned virtues. You know, uh, that's a good point. I think an, uh, another dimension to this, which is important, is that there's an element of trust in business that the public uh, expresses. And I think reading about these serial scandals tends to make people somewhat jaded about the um, their relations with the business culture, with big businesses. I'm thinking, for example, we've had a number of security breaches at companies where personal identification has been lost. And some of these companies have not disclosed these for months or even a couple of years. So I think the problem is not simply personal in how a CEO behaves in the boardroom, but also the public's trust is also something that could be eroded 
over time if this goes on. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a problem of authenticity because many organizations want to put a face forward and they want to, you know, in, in essence, market themselves as trustworthy. That's good for business. But it goes beyond just professing that this is who we want to be. It requires an organizational design that, in essence, supports the professed behavior. So let me give you an example. If if I work for an organization and one of our core values is trust, but at the same time I have incentive plans and compensation plans that are uh, in support of profiteering and short-minded, you know, short-mindedness, then that's not a very well-designed organization relative to the value of trust. I think there's a missing link there that many organizations want to be good, and being good is good for business for sure, but there's also a hard work aspect to being good, which means I have to design the organization in such a way that I'm not working counter to the values I'm professing in, in the workplace or out into the marketplace, rather. Really, are we talking about the virtues here and uh, inculcating the virtues at a personal level within a corporate framework? Do I have that right? That's where you would have to start. I mean, it's cliche, but it's often said that the CEO is the curator of culture and uh, and behavior in the organization. So, of course, it has to start with that person's leadership. Right, and people watch the top guy, right? And yeah. And if it's okay for him, it must be okay for me, That's the good authentic- or bad, right? That's the authenticity challenge, which is I have an organization that has these professed values, and I have a CEO that is either giving example to those values or not. Um, and I, as an employee in the inner workings of the organization, well, you, you know whether or not your leadership team is giving example to those values or not. Right, because the conduct of a, a top manager, him or her, is really watched closely by those who are subordinate to that person. Yeah, and, and it's part of the reason why at the consultancy at DPMC, we've started to integrate into our training, so to speak, the aspect of when we focus on, on leadership aspects, we do a whole session on virtuous leadership. Um, and we start to get those ideas out in front of leaders so that they can start to understand it from a very fundamental level. I mean, the virtues have been something that have been, that, that predate the New Testament. So um, these have been, they're age old, they're tested, um, and they work. So give me an example of how uh, introducing this concept of virtuous leadership may have affected uh, a noticeable change in in a business's culture. How does that play out? I think it's just the recognition that that is an ideal for leadership, that that's you know, rather an expectation. So we want to get this idea, we want to light a fire under leadership and under or under leaders that says there is a way to behave and there is a practice that you can, you know, you can actively practice the virtues in such a way that helps you become more authentic. There's no leader out there that puts out values that we would cringe at, right? There's right. no organization that's going right. to put out, you know, Let's take advantage Let's of the... steal and uh, right? whatever you want to do today, folks. Just right. keep so, it going, right? Okay, so we got that. We understand that uh, we're going to put values out there and we're going to profess these values that are either trust or their humility or their integrity or their ingenuity or whatever it is. They're all good ideas, right? Well, then how do we practice? How, do, how are we authentic to those values? What we're saying is 
the practice of the virtues is a very robust way and a very proven way to help leadership teams and leaders put into play the values that they're professing and it helps them become more authentic. Let me put a hypothetical to you, Phil. Let's say you're a, a middle manager, um, maybe even you're a, a, a foreman on the factory floor. You've got a lot of pressure from upper management. You're also trying to manage people and get them to accomplish your uh, objectives. And then you get a order request mandate to do something that you know is ethically problematic. And so you got a couple options. You do it, and then your conscience has to live with it. Or you refuse to do it based on uh, your recent seminar on virtuous leadership you know is wrong. But then upper management says, no, you got to do this. And if you don't do it, I'm afraid we have to find someone else who will do this and you can look for another job. How would you analyze that situation? You've got the mission statement, you've got the uh, awareness, but at the operational level, things don't quite play out according to the uh, playbook. Well, I hope, I hope that person stays true to their character and doesn't compromise on that situation. But part of what virtuous, the virtues do and virtuous leadership does is it brings a common language to the organization so that these things aren't interpreted one way by leadership and another way by somebody else in the organization, or it's just not in, misinterpreted amongst um, the people in the organization. It brings commonality to the discussion of, you know, how do we think of self-control in these situations? How do we think of justice in these situations or prudence or whatever? So it starts to bring together the organization uh, around a common language where we can talk about challenges in the workplace, but we can get down to it at a level that we start to interpret the, the, um, the decisions that could be made in a more consistent way. Um, and I think that's the power of starting to introduce the virtues into a workplace is just this idea that we can start to talk around these things with a common language and it starts to bring, you know, people together in this respect. And maybe a, a little more self-respect and dignity for all involved. Yeah, absolutely. And in your work with corporations, the model or paradigm of uh, virtuous business is based on something called the Virtuous Leadership System. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, well, we're in partnership with the Virtuous Leadership Institute, which was founded by a gentleman by the name of Alexander Havard, a Frenchman who wrote a book called Virtuous Leadership, uh, where he talks at length about the need for leaders to practice the virtues. And there's two overarching virtues beyond the four cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, courage, and self-control. And the two that he writes about are the virtue of humility and magnanimity. And humility, we all should understand. It's this idea of not only knowing self, but knowing self relative to others. But um, magnanimity, I have to admit, was a word that was not in my vocabulary a few years ago. <laughs> so it was new to me, but it's this idea of uh, aspiring to greatness, but not, a, not an egotistical aspiration. It's aspiring to greatness by building others, by serving others, and it's by outward, finding greatness. outward-directed rather Absolutely. than... Absolutely. It's a lot yeah. of 
uh, servant leadership uh, is formed there. So uh, we formed a partnership with him. We bring Alexander to speak with some of our clients on a case-by-case basis, and um, we're starting to now integrate some of his ideas more thoroughly into our leadership uh, programs within DPMC. Phil, thank you. You can find out more about DPMC Consulting at dpmc.us. Starting on June 19th, join us in Grand Rapids, Michigan for Acting University, a four-day conference featuring over 140 courses, over 80 world-class faculty members, and a learning community of more than 1,000 people. All of these adding up to one amazing conference focused on the intersection of faith, liberty, and free market economics. To learn more about how you can apply and attend, visit university.acton.org. Registration for domestic attendees closes on May 1st, so send in your application today. Hello, and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and we're going to start off with a little sound from Austin, Texas. Deep in a world of sorrow, trouble weighing on your mind. Seems there's nowhere to turn. Every corner is blind. That was a group called Kathy in the Kilowatts, and uh, they have a new album out called Premonition of Love. And I am fortunate to talk to the pretty woman whose face is on the cover of this album, wearing a leopard skin pillbox hat, Kathy Murray. How are you doing, Hi, Kathy? It's great to I'm talk to you. I'm doing great. It's great to be on the Acton Podcast. Well, it's great to have you here. And we're going to talk a little bit today, just have a, a a brief conversation about the history of blues. We're going to talk about the Austin music scene that you've been a part of for almost as long as we've both been alive and uh, talk a little bit about your new album as well. So let's get started. Um, You uh, began in Austin and you're you're still there. You're a fixture there. And, And Austin has been a really great scene for blues women. Uh, you you see you seem to know more blues women from Austin than you do say from other blues centers such as Detroit or Chicago or Memphis. Is is that a correct assumption? I believe that's true, um, and that may be partly because of the support of Clifford Antone and, and Antone's nightclub and, and record label. Okay, well, there are so many, you know, uh, female blues artists that, that have come from there. Marsha Ball, I'm thinking Luann Barton. Angela uh, Straley. Angela Lavelle Straley. White is based here now, and she did some records on, on the Antons label. Exactly, exactly. And and so you attribute most of that to uh, Antones and uh, other venues there that have just been a little bit more friendly towards uh, female blues singers? Or is it maybe because there's just more of a musical progressive feeling in, in Austin where almost anything goes and more people are allowed to uh, express themselves freely as opposed to, say, maybe the, the northern cities? I would say that it's probably both of those. 
Okay. Okay. Well, 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 tell me a little bit how how you got started in in the blues. Maybe we can even you know turn the dial back, uh, you know, the wayback machine, and and go back to a, a, a little bit of the history of the blues. And uh, th- there's definitely a school of blues that is uh, very much of Texas, as opposed to the the Delta blues of Memphis and the uh, the later Chicago blues and the more urban, grittier blues. Yes, yes, those are all, you know, wonderful styles of blues. Um, Bruce, you know, I I personally had an extremely turbulent childhood that I was lucky to survive. And all of my life I have been attracted to blues music. Uh, The first uh, was an, an album of uh, Porgy and Bess. And then I had, you know, Elvis 45s, uh, Don't Be Cruel and Heartbreak Hotel that, that, you know, came out of the blues. But what really, really turned my head was when I was 16 years old and Austin was very wide open then and it was fine for a 16-year-old to go to the Armadillo World Headquarters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I saw a triple bill that night that had uh, Jimmy Vaughn's band Storm, Stevie Vaughn, he wasn't Stevie Ray Vaughn yet. He was 17 years old, and uh, he had a band called the Nightcrawlers with an iconic uh, blues ba- bass player, Keith Ferguson, who was a huge influence on the whole scene. Sure, who went on to, to be in uh, the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Yes, and and there's a great book out that a, a, a German man named Detlef Schmidt wrote recently called Keith Ferguson, Texas Blues Bass. Highly recommended. And uh, another uh, iconic Austin blues band called Paul Ray and the Cobras that later Stevie Vaughan joined that band for, for years. And that was the first night I ever saw live music. And it was wonderful. It was so healing, so exciting to realize that there were things going on in this world that were you know, so much better than anything I'd ever seen before. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, without belaboring the point, you said that uh, your your upbringing was um, not idyllic by any stretch of the imagination, and and that's essentially where the blues stem from, is uh, from African American music that uh, kind of split off, and uh, the spiritual version was uh, became gospel, and the secular version which is still very spiritual because it speaks to themes of, of freedom and uh, the alternate uh, deep blues and elation, because blues does not necessarily mean I'm sad. It, it just means it's a, it's a mode of music. Yes, and it's about all human emotion. And I believe gospel probably started in the 1700s uh, and then secular blues more in the 1900s in Mississippi on the plantations, uh, African-American slaves, probably handed down by, you know, a, a storytelling and, and a, a rhythmic music style from Africa, and then also uh, blended with European folk songs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also in, in hill music from uh, the, the, the Scottish in, in Virginia. Very much. And, you know, the ne- you talk about the nexus, you know, the connection between blues and gospel music. Yes, you know, they're, they're both about freedom and speaking your truth. And they're also similar with, with the feel of the music. Um, I always li- I like to think about 
modern quantum physics that teaches us that what looks solid in this world is really more than 99% empty space and that there's a quantum field that connects everything. And both blues and gospel music honor and respect the spaces between notes, allowing the music to breathe and come alive. And in, in some cases, I think some of that's missing in today's blues rock. You know, it's technically structured as a blues, but it, it sometimes loses the punch, the feel, and the groove. You know, it can sometimes be ironed out from the rock influence that that is a, a playing of a constant flurry of notes and doesn't leave those spaces that really bring the music to life, in, in, you know, in my experience. Well, I think that's what uh, draws me to blues or female blues singers is is the the simple fact that um they're 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 not you know straining to show that um, you know they're feeling the pain or uh, a, a lot of it seems more histrionic actually than uh genuinely organically emotional yes that's a really good way to put it and uh all of 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 you know, current mo- modern music has definitely been strongly influenced with early female trailblazers like Ma Rainey and uh, Ida Cox, Bessie Smith, Memphis Minnie, and then later Ruth Brown, Coco Taylor, Eddie James um, were all strong and brave role models for women's empowerment. And And though for the most part these artists played secular blues music, their music brought with it a mes- message of hope and freedom and joy and, and, and using your voice in expressing pain and struggle uh, no less than that of the, the gospel artists. Well, now that we're talking about female vocalists, you, were, you, you came of age in the 1970s in Austin, and when did mm-hmm. you find your voice? When did you find the voice that said, Holy cats! I, I've got some chops here, and uh, I, I feel confident to go out on stage. Um, I always, my whole life, loved to sing, but I was a very shy little thing. Uh, I had been bullied at school, and you know, all kinds of things, difficult things. And I would have never, in a million years, thought I would have the courage to ever open my mouth in public. But I, I had role models. Uh, the first female blues singer I ever saw was Angela Straley when she was young, uh, playing with a, a great guitar player uh, that was later with Paul and the Cobras, Denny Freeman, and the great Dole Bramhall Sr. on drums, uh, who uh, was a real close friend of, of Stevie Vaughan's and wrote a lot of Stevie's hits with him. So I, you know, seeing Angela Straley come around that corner and seeing her sing, oh, it just blew my mind, and it, it really made me want to do it. At that time, I didn't think I would ever have the courage to do it, but it it started the seed, you know, kind of germinating. Well, who who are some of your uh, your top influences? And 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 when I, I say that, I, I say that as a person who cannot carry a note to save his life. So, you know, I would like to say that my influences are Frank Sinatra, but obviously I don't have a voice like Sinatra. It's more like Weird Al Yankovic. So, <laughs> so well, we need that too. Well, absolutely, but uh, I, I would much prefer to sing like Ray Charles or Frank Sinatra, and uh, the, the the Lord did not give me the pipes to do that. So, uh, when when you do you aspire to someone that you admire? Or do you go with 
uh, the innate natural talent that you were born with? Um, I I think that in the beginning it was the former. That I, I mean, uh, when I was first playing in bands, I started when I was 21 years old, and I had uh, uh, Samuel Magic Magics, uh, also known as Magic Sam. I had mm-hmm. uh, two of his albums, West Side Soul and Black Magic. And I listened to them, and I still do, but I listened to them over and over every day because I wanted to sing like Magic Sam. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a, that's a lifelong goal, and, and certainly I'm sure I haven't achieved it, but it's, you know, it's a journey, and it's, it's a goal, and that's what I was shooting for. Um, hearing Bobby Blue Bland and uh, Fats Domino and Jimmy Reed and, and Clifton Schneer and everybody that came through Antone's, Soap Creek Saloon, the armadillo, um, they were all, all influences. I, uh, when I was a young woman in my early 20s, I, you know, supported myself by being a house painter. I was just, you know, had wings on my feet a little bit too much to work an office-type job or anything. Uh, so uh, I would tape Paul Ray's Twine Time shows, very famous blues shows here in Austin on the public radio station. And I'd have the cassette in a boombox, and I'd listen to that all day and sing along with all the Esther Phillips and Ted Taylor and everybody he would play on his show, Junior Parker. And, and that was kind of a school in, in a way, you know. Well, in, in listening to your, your new CD, Premonition of Love, I, I, I like to play a little game with myself where I, I write down uh, – little musical cues. I mean, I, I obviously hear some Bo Diddley guitar work in there and nice little, you know, shaving and haircut two bits kind of rhythm going on some of the songs. I, I hear some Bobby Bland. Uh, I, I, I hear a lot of that. But listening to your, your vocals, and I know you should tread lightly when talking to a vocalist whose other voices you're picking up in, in her delivery. But um, let me know what, what, what you think of uh, some of these uh, other women who are well-known singers. Uh, Kitty Wells, I hear a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, I definitely. Hear little, <laughs> I, I hear a little Brenda Lee, uh, maybe some Wanda Jackson. And um, moving up to more recent times, uh, there was an uh, Ohio singer named Rachel Sweet in the 1970s. And... Um, then there's uh, a, another Irish singer whose whose name uh, escapes me right now, Imelda, who who's played with Jeff Beck, and but just an amazing amazing singer as well. So um, I, I hear well, I have to look up. I'm not familiar with the last uh, two, but all the oh, other Imelda, people, Imelda I'm a big fan. Imelda Maine. Oh yes, oh yes, I I have heard her and I love her. Yes, fantastic. Yes, you know, um, but because, because you can go from a roar to a coo. In on the turn of a dime, it, 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 it's it's amazing how you do that. Well, thank you so much. I love the music, and and you know, I mean, I, I certainly uh, was very, very, very influenced by Doyle Bram Hall, who Stevie Ray Vaughan patterned his singing style after, uh, and Luann Barton, Angela Straley, uh, Paul Ray. Uh, and and also very influenced by the vocals of Kim Wilson. 
Oh, he's well, one of my favorite blues singers. He, absolutely, here too. He's a he's a fellow Michigan boy and uh, the lead singer for the Fabulous Thunderbirds. For listeners who who are unaware, and uh, just an amazing singer and just a, a mind blowing harp player as well. And I, I've had the opportunity to interview him once or twice, and uh, also a really 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 nice man. Yes, and he's a great songwriter. And you know, now that we're talking, I realize that him writing his own songs kind of gave me the idea to write my own songs because that wasn't happening a whole lot in the blues here. Right, and 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 I'm not going to give short shrift to to your original music because it's fantastic. But you also go very very deep in the songs that you select for covers. Yes, you know, um, like the the song that we did of Magic Sam's What Have I Done Wrong, that has been recorded by so many people. And I love the song. And um, I've done it since the very beginning. Um, And years ago, and I wish I could remember who the artist was, but a friend, um, I'm talking, you know, 30 years ago, played me a 45 of a gospel version of What Have I Done Wrong that was... Uh, similar in melody, groove, similar in lyrics, but they sang, uh, Jesus, tell me what have I done wrong? Wow. And the one that I do, the secular one, the Magic Sam, is, baby, tell me what have I done wrong? And that was just, that song is directly out of the church. Yes, Absolutely. And uh, and thank you for regaling with with that version. And uh, I'd like to take a little break here so we can play a, a sample of another track off your new album, Premonition of Love. And um, if, if it's all right with you, I'd like to do a, a little segment from Beggars Can't Be Choosers. Oh, great. Thank you. Beggars can't be choosers. So you can do what you okay, we're back. Thank you so much for uh, letting me play that, and uh, thanks for taking the time to sit down and talk to us. I think we have time for uh, give us a story of some uh, what you consider to be the quintessential Austin music blues story that uh, you participated in or you were actually witness to. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do like, a, a like, little t- like, a two-story segue. Okay. Okay, so, you know, uh, there was a club called The One Night, and uh, it had blues seven nights a week, um, and uh, Jimmy Vaughn's band, Storm, played, I believe, Monday nights. Stevie Vaughn was with Paul Ray and the Cobras on Wednesdays. We used to get to go and see them all the time for Pass the Hat. Um, it was during the time of the Cosmic Cowboy uh, riding high in Austin, and the blues could hardly get arrested, but Jimmy and Stevie and a number of other great artists, including Keith Ferguson, were c- completely committed to playing the blues, and they were they were struggling horribly financially. And I remember one night at the one night, some uh, prankster got on the uh, the knobs of the PA system, the public address system, and turned the uh, uh, delay up, um, the reverb up real loud. And so at the end of the night, uh, 
Jimmy got on the microphone and he was saying, uh, my daddy was right. I'm never going to make any money playing music. <laughs> it was, it was, it, we, I just felt so bad for him because he, he was so, you know, wonderful. Talk about fabulous. Yes, you know, fabulous. And uh, then, okay, so fast forward a couple years at, to the original Antones on West 6th Street here in Austin. I mean, uh, East 6th Street here in Austin. Maybe I'm thinking 1976. And the Fabulous Thunderbirds were the house band in Antones. Uh, Clifford Antone uh, brought the Muddy Waters band down. So there was a, a second story backstage that had a uh, window that overlooked the bandstand. Muddy's band was all backstage. Um, Muddy, uh, Calvin Jones, Willie Big Eye Smith, Pine Top Perkins, Bob Margolin was in the band at the time. And the T-Birds kicked off into their first song, and that curtain just whipped back on that window, and the whole Muddy Waters band was just staring in awe at, at this <laughs> white blues band. And and they became fast friends that night. Um, Muddy used to say that Kim Wilson was the reincarnation of little Walter Jacobs. Um, and Muddy started you know, telling everyone how great this band was, and their fortunes turned around. And eventually, you know, led to where Jimmy Vaughn has been an influence on guitar players all over the world, you know, including Eric Clapton, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and he's very successful, and I'm sure his daddy's looking at him from heaven saying, you did, you did good, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, um, b- b- before we sign off, tell us how to get, tell listeners how to get a copy of your, your new album, Premonition of Love. It's Kathy and the Kilowatts, and uh, it's on Nola Blue label. Nola Blue Records, yes. yes. We're so excited to. We we this is our first release on Nola Blue, fantastic record label. Um, and uh, anyone can Google Kathy Kilowatts, and uh, our website will come up, and you can certainly get a signed copy from us. The uh, record Premonition of Love is also available on uh, for pre-order on Amazon right now. And then on April 13th, it'll be ready to go on Amazon and CD Baby and and other places. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with me. And and, uh, I'm I'm certain the listening audience is blown away and just as excited about your your new release as as I am. So, uh, again, uh, Kathy Murray, thank you so much for joining us. Greatly appreciate it, Bruce. Okay. And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. And we'll talk to you again next week. And that wraps up today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G, where you can access Acton's official blog, bookshop, publication archives, and more. Lastly, if you have questions for the Acton Institute team that you would like answered in future segments of the podcast, leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore. 